optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I answer your personal question? Now what is in the perfect time? What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com TFS. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Why, hello there. This is Tim Ferriss. Breaker of Chains, Mother of Dragons. Welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show. Where does my job always to deconstruct world-class performers of many, many different varieties, pulling out the lessons, strategies, habits, etc. that you can apply and test in your own life. My guest today is none other than the comedian's comedian, Bill Burr, at Bill Burr on Twitter, B-I-L-L-B-U-R-R. Please say hello. Many of you know him as a stand-up comedian, of course. His YouTube clips have followed me around the planet, as has his podcast. He is one of the funniest humans alive. I mean, he loses his audience sometimes on purpose because making them laugh is not enough of a challenge, and then he'll wheel them back in and get them back on his side. And he's been requested for this podcast for many years. Rolling Stone has called him, quote, the undisputed heavyweight champ of rage-fueled humor, end quote. And when we finally got on the same stage to have a conversation and do this, he did not disappoint. So in this very wide-ranging conversation, Bill and I go all over the place. We talk about how he found his way into stand-up comedy, uh, why he enjoys going for an encore after he's been booed, 
how he started as a squeaky clean comedian and then ended up where he is now, which is quite, quite different. How learning can serve as therapy, the importance of enjoying success, and much more. This interview comes from my TV show Fearless, with fear less, less in parentheses, because the objective is to learn to fear less, not to be fearless, not possible, in which I interview world-class performers, that's probably my favorite combo word, <laughs> on stage about how they've overcome doubt, conquered fear, and made their toughest decisions. You can watch the entire first episode with illusionist David Blaine for free at att.net forward slash fearless, no parentheses, so all one word, att.net forward slash fearless, the way you would usually spell it. Highly recommend you check that out. And to see all episodes, you can get it on DirecTV or you can go to DirecTV Now. Uh, and I believe that's just directtvnow.com, but directtv.com. So D I R E C T V.com. Uh, and then click on Direct Now. We recorded about three hours of material on stage, and only one hour was used for TV. That means this episode is almost entirely new content that did not appear on TV. So even if you saw that episode already, you're going to get a lot more patented Bill Burr. So please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Mr. Bill Burr. Welcome to Fearless. I'm your host, Tim Ferriss. And on this stage, we'll be deconstructing world-class performers to uncover the specific tactics that they've used to overcome doubt, tackle hard decisions, and ultimately succeed. So imagine yourself all alone on stage in front of 14,000 people staring directly at you. For many of us, probably most of us, that'd be a complete nightmare. But for my guest tonight, it's just another day at the office. The man you're about to meet is one of the most prolific and respected comedians in the world. He's done five-hour-long comedy specials, hosts one of the most popular podcasts of all time, and is the co-creator and star of the animated series F is for Family. Please welcome to the stage, Bill Burr. How you doing, buddy? I'm good, I'm good. If you ever get booed, you gotta come back. If there's an encore, you gotta go back. I think, you gotta go back. So I waved, and I remember there was this kid came running up, because I trashed all of their teams, because the Phillies hadn't won a World Series yet. They were like two years away from it at that point. And I just remember this kid was like, was, was yelling at me. He was just going, he's going, hey, he's going, fuck you, fuck you. <laughs> Giving me the finger, yelling, fuck you, when I was standing there. He was like, like 30 yards away. I just kept going. I kept going, what? What? And he started going, fuck you, fuck you. I literally just, he's like giving me the finger. Like, I don't know what it is. I just kept going, what? I literally got the, he was like hopping mad. By the end, he was, he was jumping up. Fuck you, fuck you. I was like, I, I can't, I can't. Like, <laughs> I remember I was standing next to Opie and we were just laughing, going like, how, how dumb is this kid? So, um, but then I, I, was, I was mortified afterwards because I thought, um, you know, because I knew, like, a lot, a lot of stuff was coming up on, you know, people who were having phones, they had cameras, and I was just going, you know, everyone's going to see me get booed. This is going to be embarrassing. I didn't know how it was going to play. I just thought um, that people weren't going to understand it. Now, we first connected and started texting because we know Dave Elich, who's an amazing professional drummer. Yeah, and teacher. Yes, he And is. teacher. He's yes, just he incredible. Is. He has a great T-shirt for you guys who want, are looking for T-shirts to buy. And it says... Uh, 
what is it, more slowly once again, something like that. And he says, slow down. Slow down. And I think it says repeat yeah. or do repeat it again. Repeat or do it again on the back. And so he'll right. just, he got sick of saying the same thing, so he just point to one side of his shirt. How did you get into drumming? Why, why drumming? Uh, how did I get into drumming? I guess everyone was into music, you know, where I grew up and everything. And um, I loved music, and, but I didn't start playing drum cells almost like 20 years old. Like I, I started really late. But uh, and the reason for that was I was working in a warehouse and I came from a jock town. So everybody played sports, you know, pond hockey and all that. So I, I did a lot of that stuff. And like I liked music, but there was only a couple of kids that played guitar and I wasn't around it. Like I didn't think it was possible. I thought what I, I was watching people doing on TV, I just didn't think you could do it. And then I started working in this warehouse and there was kids my age and they were from uh, a different town that was more like kids put together bands and stuff. And they were coming in like the songs I liked, they could play it. And I was like, wow, it's amazing. So I started playing guitar, and I just didn't have the patience for it. And I think the thing about drumming was this, the sport background, where it was like a real physical thing that, that it kind of came into play. And I just started, I just started playing, and um, I played for like six, seven years. Um, and during somewhere during that time, I started playing. Uh, I started doing stand up, and I moved to New York. And your neighbors don't mind if you're strumming a guitar. You can't like play drums in a one bedroom apartment. <laughs> without pissing everybody off. So I kind of stopped for like five years before I got back into it. Yeah. I grew up on Long Island. I feel like we have the, we don't have a, a tough accent. It's just a bad accent. Yeah. I think it was, uh, it's a lot like the show we do. Yeah. Efforts for family with, where it was just like the parents just sent you outside. And some days you had good days. Sometimes you had bad days. Sometimes you just ran into bigger kids and they would just beat the shit out of you <laughs> for no reason. I distinctly remember them putting in a pool one time. And they were just, they, they were like, you know, whatever the hell it is when they're smoothing out the concrete. And this older kid dared me to throw a rock into it. So I, I, I wanted his approval. And I just took this big rock and this guy was just smoothing it out. And I just threw it. Down. <laughs> and then, this guy almost killed me. He almost killed me. So that's back when you could almost kill a kid and it, was, it wasn't a problem. <laughs> there was no cell phone video. It was all your word against theirs. So... I think a lot of the reasons why I started doing stand-up was I just thought, okay, I'm going to get on stage, show people that I'm a funny guy, and people will stop fucking with me. Like, that was basically... And then, like, I, and then I, was a, and that was, I remember thinking that everything's going to fall into place. I'll meet the girl of my dreams, I'll make my money, I'll get my whatever the hell I want, a house. And so I only worked on getting better as a comedian. And then by the time I got to my mid-30s, like, being a comedian was, like, 600 miles down the road and everything else was at the starting blocks and like literally like social interactions. I kept messing up relationships. I mean, I was 36. I was still sleep, sleeping on a futon. Um, and what they called was a one bedroom apartment, which was bullshit. Cause I met the woman who lived upstairs who had the exact same apartment and hers was a studio. They just slammed a wall into mine. <laughs> and um, yeah. So I remember like those, there was like a three year period of like, I was in a full on depression and I was so detached. I didn't, I wasn't even, I wasn't even aware of it. When, what, what was the age, roughly, on that period? Oh, I don't know. It was like the early 2000s, whatever that, late 90s, early 2000s. It might have been a five, six year. I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't worry about making it. I didn't worry about how am I going to make money. I didn't worry. I just like, I'm doing this. And when Billy got off stage, I mean, it was the end of the night. I was like going like, who do I call for open mics? Like, how do I do this? And I remember he wrote down Rita. And uh, Rita Choice, who was, uh, she used to book it. And uh, she was like, Back then, like one of the big characters, like used to always run into a comedy club. So I used to call in to do open mics 
And uh, I remember she used to, once she got to know me and she thought I was kind of funny, I'd call up and be like, hey, hey, Rita, it's uh, Bill Burr. I'd like to draw, do it. And she'd go, no, 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 Bill. You call me and you say, Rita, this is open micer Bill Burr. I, she was always breaking balls. So I would always <laughs> laugh and I would do it. And she was kind of like a test. Like if you had like a sense of humor about yourself. And I gradually like worked my way in um, to doing stand-up. You know, I remember one time I, I did a show. I've told this before, but I, I did this show. I was, I was uh, seeing this woman when I was in New York, and, and I remember she came over, and I was making her dinner or whatever, and then I had a spot at the comic strip, which where I was living was right around the corner. So I said, I got to go run do a spot. And during the week, I mean, you know, she asked me, what do those spots pay? And they were like, the comic strip was hilarious. It was like $5, $8, $7. And you just, basically, you're just going up there trying out material. And I went up there, and... Um, I tried out new material and it worked and I was psyched and I came home and I finished like cooking the dinner or whatever. I think I was making, I can't remember what I was making. And, uh, I did this stupid dance in the kitchen and she was laughing and I was dancing cause I had this new material. And I was excited. And then she got like this, uh, she got like this sad look on her face. I was like, God, did I dance that bad? Like what's the matter? Right. And she goes, no, she goes, I, I just wish I had a job where I got paid $8. I came home and danced in a kitchen. <laughs> and I never forgot that. I was yeah. like, oh, yeah. I didn't even, I didn't even think that. Because I got this weird thing about money where I, I, I want to have it so I'm not broke, but I don't give a shit about it. But I also don't want to have debt, so I don't overextend myself. But I don't, uh, I don't give a shit about it. Like, um, I, will, I will pay extra to not go through the process. Like, I can't even, like, I don't use, like, you know, frequent flyer miles. Yeah. Like my wife signed me up for them, but I don't use them ever because I don't want to go through the fucking, you know, logging in and all of a sudden I'm working for American Airlines. I'm like, I don't work for these fucking people. Like I'll, I'll buy my own ticket. I don't, I don't want to do this. Right. Yeah, I won't cancel shit. Like I got like gym memberships I've never canceled because I'm, I'm not going through going on that stupid thing. And if you want to do this, press one. If you want to do that, press two. Like, I got, I don't know, like my free time, I, I, I cherish it. And I'm not like going to fucking, I'm not, I'm not going to be laying on my deathbed one time just thinking about how many hours I spent yeah. on the phone going, person, person, <laughs> operator, person, fuck you. Like, I, I don't want to do that. So um, I would rather pay the, <laughs> I'd rather pay the extra charge. Yeah. So a little bit later. I want to pull up the not caring about money examples that I have found most personally amusing, which are actually from your podcast. Uh, so we'll get to those. Okay. <laughs> but uh, at the time, so if you could just place us, when were you working in your dad's office? And maybe you could describe what your dad did. Early 90s to mid-90s. I was working in, uh, um, my, we were working in a dental office. And I had been laid off from the warehouse with the guy all coked up, right? But my car was paid off, thank God, and I was living at home. So I was kind of living like this little existence for like three months. And my dad started uh, working with this other guy, went into practice with him, and I need he needed some, you know. I think he was just sick of watching me being around the house, so <laughs> nepotism kicked in. And next thing you know, I got a lab coat, and I'm standing next to him, handing him all the shit as he's taking teeth out and, and stuff. And I had to get past the uh, gross factor of that. And uh, then I learned how to pour up models and stuff and uh, take x-rays. And I was actually, I was halfway decent at it. But I knew that, you know, for half a second, I thought maybe, you know, I would do this. But what was funny was I had to call 
my father, Dr. Burr. I couldn't call him dad in front of a patient because that would be weird. Like, hey, dad, do you, you, want, you want this? So I had to keep it professional. And uh, when I worked there was around the time when I started doing stand-up. And what sucked, I was still living at home. So he knew because at the end of the night, he'd be like, where are you working tonight? And I would have like a, I'd have like a gig in Maine living in Massachusetts. And I would for free. And I would drive That's up there right. or maybe like five, ten bucks gas money. And I would drive all the way up. And my dad would have like seven o'clock patients and shit. Like he worked like a lunatic, like from seven to seven. He would side book root canals like on molars, which is three you know, nerve involvements. We'd be, we'd like numb up a guy and then we'd go in the other room and like, and he didn't give a shit too. Like I remember one time some homeless guy came in. He was like, I finally got a lunch. Cause you'd never get a lunch with him. This guy came in, you know, he was, you know, substance abuse and he was all, you know, and all these other guys I, I noticed would just give him medicine. They would leave. My dad would be like, yeah, just get him in there and blah, blah, blah. And I was like pissed. And I'd be like, Dr. Brian, what the fuck? Why can we just get this guy, you know? And he just goes, look, he goes, I can't go home tonight knowing there's some guy in pain and I didn't do anything. Did you get material for, for your comedy from that experience? Oh, yeah, big time. So I read that you had dental comedy early, and I, I don't know what dental comedy is. Oh, yeah. So. No, no, I had all of it. I had all of it. My dad used to, like, <laughs> he used to set me up because he knew that, I swear to God, if I had, like, a, like a late show, then he would go extra fast. <laughs> He'd just go, give me that, give me that. He'd go, Christ, Bill, you're out to lunch. He would start giving me shit in front of the patient. I used to tell him, like, like Dad, you can't do that type of stuff. And, like, he, he wasn't like that. But I got a lot of it out of, like, patients. Like, I remember this guy came in. Uh, I used to work totally squeaky clean. Totally clean because I didn't want to offend anybody because I didn't want to get heckled because I was still this really shy person, right? So I remember this guy came in one time and like his teeth were all rotten out. And I just remember he said something like, uh, like, Doc, you know, I don't understand what the problem is. You know, I, I, I brush my teeth almost every day. Right. <laughs> That's what he said. So my punchline to that was like, oh, yeah. Well, do you wipe your ass almost every time you take a shit? <laughs> so for a while, I started closing on that joke and I would work totally squeaky clean going up there looking like Ron Howard. And everybody's like, oh, look at this wholesome guy. And then out of nowhere, I would just end with, yeah, do you wipe your ass almost every time you take a shit? And I'd be like, good night, everybody. And everybody would be like, like, dude, what's going on? I had no idea what I was doing. I actually was a prop act for a second where I had one prop. I'm like, that's for whatever reason, you're not allowed to have props in comedy and acting. It's fine. I have no idea. Right. So we had this dental mask, like when you really just had some gnarly shit going on. They had these plastic things. It looked like a welder shield, but it was all plastic. When just, I'm like, I'll spare you the details when stuff is flying at you. So I used to bring that, and I would take it out after I would do all the dental material and be like, yeah, my job's so bad. Like, I have to wear this at work, and I would just put it on, and I had no joke. And I would put it on, and they'd sort of chuckle and be like waiting for the joke. And then behind the mask, like almost like muffled, I'd be like, Give me everybody! I just take it away, and, and I'd put it back in my little duffel bag, and I'd walk away. It was just, that was horrible. How do you know when something is close and when something is done? Like uh, when you're working on a joke or a piece of writing, how do you know when something's done? Well, I think when I'm, when I'm touring, none of the jokes are done. Until I start getting sick of them, then I'm like, all right, I need to record these and document these because they're going to start becoming not funny hmm. because they're starting to feel like a job to tell them I'm mm -hmm. sick of this joke. And Oh my God, I don't want to do this joke. And this is one so long. And yeah. 
I might not think that anymore. And those things, sometimes those things just drop away and you, you never record them or anything. So I'd, I'd say it's like that. When you bombed that first time, was that a Kelly's? That third, yeah. that third gig. Jesus, you did your research. Uh, How the hell did you find that one? I must have told that on another podcast. <laughs> so, a good team helping me. Magic elves in the back as well. The... That's why you got to cover that camera up on your flat screen <laughs> and on your laptop. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> That's actually really no, good. True. That's they actually really, really good advice. You. They try to see what you're watching and shit. If you bang your wife, so I want to talk about watching. last Tuesday night. Uh, when you, uh, I imagine the drive back after that gig was very different from, uh, from the Motley Crue experience. Mortified. Mortified. How did you, what did you do to get yourself back on the horse for the, for the next gig? I mean, what did you say to yourself before you got on stage the next time? Because a lot of people like fall off, they don't get back on. Well, I fell off a lot of things and didn't get back on. But, like, I also always knew I, – I knew if I was good at something or if I wasn't. Like, you know what I mean? Like, as much as I love playing drums and everything, I went to the music store enough times and saw an 8-year-old get on a drum kit. And I'd be I would like, dude, like, I would pay you to take lessons. Like, I just didn't have it. Like, it's a hobby. It's something yeah. I enjoy doing. But I would never subject anybody to it on a professional level. So, um, this happens to me a lot with my ADD is I went down that road and I forgot the question. Ah, the question was, which is fine, by the way. Uh, the question was, how did you get back on the horse? What did you say to oh. yourself before getting back on well, stage? Well, I never, it never dawned on me not to do it again. Right. Had you it's already committed to the it, next gig? All the other social shit that mortified me, I just stayed away from it. Yeah. And, but that thing was like, I don't think I had another. Maybe I, I just was like, mm-hmm. you, knew, you know it's going to happen. It's like you're riding a motorcycle. Right. You know. One of these days, you're going to go down. You just hope you're going to live. You talked about some dark periods earlier. I'm forgetting the exact timeline, but what precipitated that? I guess you said it was a couple of years. And for people who don't know, I mean, I almost off myself uh, during a year off from college. So it's like I've had some some battles myself. What motive? How are you going to do it? You know what? So this is a good question. And I'll tell you why I'm not going to give an answer, because it was a really good plan. It was a plan oh. that would minimize guilt or self-blaming on the part of my family. It was really well thought through. I had everything specked out. And so for the risk... Zip line in the woods into a, <laughs> into a sword. Mostly involved, yeah, involved some porcupines, a little bit of curare, yeah. It was very complex. Hard to replicate. But, uh, yeah, I wouldn't want people to copycat it if I, if I put it out there. But how, what, what precipitated that period for you? Um, uh, what does that mean? What came before that? You, uh, what triggered it? Like, what led to <laughs> Sorry. Using weatherman language. My bad. Uh, I don't know why. It just comes out of me sometimes. Uh, yeah, what led, what led to it? Like, what triggered going into that fight? Um... I don't, half of you laughing didn't know what it meant either. Um, thank you. Uh, I, I just think I was, it was, I was just going full speed towards a wall that, you know, because I thought I was normal, well-adjusted. And even though I knew I had like a crazy temper, I had this period, you know, where I just was really just like, you know, I would be what you needed me to be. Yeah. And like, I, I really had like, I was friends with everybody. Right. Which is not a real thing. Yeah. Um, if you're being who you are, I would just, I would adjust my shit so I wouldn't cause any friction. So there wouldn't be, you know, any like, you know, 
the shit I dealt with coming up. I had enough of people screaming and yelling. I had enough of fighting and all that stuff that I would just adjust my behavior so then we, we would just be smooth. And um, I just think using that as a game plan, eventually you're just going to, you're so going to spin away from who the hell you are um, that I think that, you know, and also just focusing on stand-up and not other areas of my life, I think then that's when the, the anger and all of that stuff started to come up. And then I kind of went like this completely different person. And I really started snapping about nothing um, for a good 12 years. And uh, I think, yeah, somewhere in there, somewhere in there. I mean, maybe I, w- I was always like depressed, but I didn't realize it. I think I just didn't realize it. And somewhere along the line, you know, one of the umpteen thousand poor women that ever came across me, like one of them finally told me to go to therapy. And I went there thinking like, yeah, I'm fine. Blah, 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 blah. And then you start telling story. And it was all this shit that I knew that happened, but was just hovering. Yeah. It just sort of, it's just over here and you're just, just going around in life. And then all of a sudden, when you start talking about it, it's, you say it out loud. It's like, oh, that's a real thing. Oh, that really did happen to me. It's like, and then you start thinking like, wow, I'm pretty fucked up. <laughs> and, uh, hey, and I'm not happy. Yeah. I'm really not happy. Like, and then I, I really started getting conscious of what my brain was telling me. And what my, if my brain was like a, a friend, I would like be like, yeah, dude, we can't do this anymore. <laughs> like, you're just bumming me out, man. I mean, Jesus Christ, do you ever see the light? Yeah. The fuck, you know? So then fortunately, I wasn't like clinically. So I didn't need any, any medicine. All I needed was uh, I just needed to, I just became aware of it. And I'd be like, all right, well, there's that thought. Do you want to have that thought or you want to go to the gym? I got back into playing drums, which was a great thing. And then um, I also, I just stopped giving a shit about making it in, in a way where I was just like, you know what, F- forget this. I'm just going to do what I do. Because I went through that whole period, like, you know, I know many of you guys are trying to make it out here. You just go through that period where you're just like, oh, they, they, they like guys with, you know, whatever, blue button-down shirts. And you're wearing the blue button-down shirts. And people who talk about this, they, like, in my time, it, it's gone from the tail end of the sport coat guy into the grunge guy, into the alt scene, into the, the whole, like, whatever that period was where guys in their 30s acted like they were 14 and they were awkward and just, you know, the hoodie, like that. <laughs> My wife called them, uh, uh, what'd she call them? Uh, not baby men or something. Man boys. Man, man boys. boys. is what she called them. And I, oh, no, no, I'm just, like, awkward. Like, there was this, whole, this default thing. Yeah. It's like, oh, great, now I have to hold up both ends of the conversation, so... <laughs> I really just, those people, I, I really just, I kind of got hostile with. Mm-hmm. I was just like, well, when you get over with that, you know, and you can fucking talk to me. You, yeah, you, you are awkward. This is weird. And I also thought a lot of people, no, but a lot of people that do that, it's also, it's a passive aggressive thing to come in and fucking steal focus. And we all have to deal with how awkward you are yeah. and make sure you're okay. It's like, fuck you, dude. You're in your 30s. Figure this out. I'll never forget one time I was in a green room. In New York, I, I was living in L.A., and I met an old friend, and we were talking about the old days. About when we, oh, remember this guy? Remember that night when this happened? We were having a great time. And there was younger comics, and they were listening, and then some people who actually were in the tail end of the stories. We were having this great time. And then this, this woman comes in, comedian, and she was, like, socially awkward, and she didn't know how to, like, get into it. So we're all, oh, yeah, man, we're all laughing and everything. And she walked right into the middle of the circle. I swear to God, she just watched and going like, hello, 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 hello. And she was like mocking, saying hello. Yeah. But then totally stole all the focus and everyone's just like, oh, whoa, you all right? And, and all the fun went out of the room. 
And then everyone was dealing with her. And then she left. And I said to my friend, I go, what the, what the fuck was that? <laughs> like, who, that was like, that was some rude shit. We were having a great time. And like, if you don't know how to say fucking hello, learn how to do it. Don't come in and take the whole thing away and just ruin this thing. And that was the last time. That was the last time I was like, fuck these awkward people. Like, if you really, if you really are, look, I don't want to, like, bully people. I don't want to bully somebody. If they really are socially awkward or something like that, I'll work with you. But if you've just embraced, I'm awkward, now the world has to deal with it. Right, if that's your stick. Yeah, go go fuck yourself. (laughs) So so we also have a clip that we'll pull up in a minute from F is for Family that might, I don't know. Also, now that I've seen all the episodes... And now that you're telling me a lot of these stories, I can see where I think a lot of them came from. There, there's one clip that we'll pull up in a, in a little bit. I'm not going to do it just right now. But uh, what have you found to help get you out of a depressive period? You mentioned exercise. For instance, I mean, I, I found drummers in general to be very happy people. I don't know if they're happy and then they end up drumming or if it's because of the physical aspect of just going animal on a drum kit it's awesome it's a great feeling <laughs> it's, it's awesome so I, I drum i i, I also had uh play the drums in college uh but not very good at all but that was my experience it was it was like a it alleviated a lot of these darker yes yeah, thoughts fun. It's fun. is there anything else that you've found particularly helpful yeah i just do shit i just get up and do yeah. something that day and it's literally like i'll i will like you know i'll go on you like to cook and stuff so i'll go on youtube and i'll see somebody uh you know, what I did recently, um, who's the guy from Hell's Kitchen? I was, uh, uh, Gordon oh, Ramsay. Yeah, Gordon Ramsay. Dude, he's got this video, like the sickest scrambled egg you're ever going to make in your life. Yeah. It's insane. And um, I just remember watching it. And I was just like, I'm going to fucking make that thing. <laughs> and because uh, I have the free time, like yeah. I, as a comedian, like I, I can do it. And I went on, I bought all the ingredients and all that type of stuff. And uh, that's, that's what I do. And mm-hmm. I've, I, or I'll learn something. Um, um, you know, but I, I do have my hobbies like cooking and playing drums and a, a few other things that I do. And it's just like, I, I try to have like that moment in the day, um, like learn something or go somewhere mm-hmm. like, and, but working out is a, is a, is a big thing is that's a big thing. How did your goals change if they did from when you're trying to force fit yourself? Like what was the kind of pinnacle that you had in mind for making it to after? Well, for me coming up, it was all about having an HBO special because HBO specials, those were the best comics. That's all the great guys that I saw coming up. You got on HBO. It was totally uncensored, and they were the home for that. And unfortunately, when I got into it, um, you know, right in the like, early 90s, by the mid-90s, they just stopped doing it for like 10 years. And um, so I don't, I, that was, that's when I kind of felt rudderless because when HBO stopped doing their specials, I didn't know what to do, and then when, <laughs> when Comedy Central started doing the half hours, they, you, you were, um, the fact that they had commercials, they basically, I think it's eight minutes each hour, so they were automatically going to take 16 minutes out or eight minutes out of a half hour, and then they also, they would, they would beep out the curses with, like, the worst, most archaic, like, beep, beep, <laughs> so really, and they wouldn't just fade it down and come back up, so... Um, I remember watching specials and just thinking that was really distracting. So once again, I worked clean. So if you watch my first half hour on Comedy Central, I worked totally clean. Um, and I gave, them, I gave them the least amount of material that I could. 
because I just looked at it because those guys doing like, all right, here's a half, you know, it's a half hour. They're only going to use 22 minutes. They would, they, they would do is they do 40. So then you had this guy who you didn't know, you didn't approve of, is now going to hack 40 minutes down to 22. What is he going to do? Exactly. So I was like, immediately, I was like, well, fuck that. Like, what's the least you, you can do? And they said, least the amount of time you can do is like 25 or 26. And I did exactly that. So the worst you could do was butcher four of it out, but the rest of it was going to look good. So I, I was happy with it. And, um, you know, it was just kind of doing stuff like that. But it, it still wasn't what I wanted because it wasn't me that that half hour that I did. That was me, like, just kind of doing an extended Letterman spot where I was working totally clean. And, but it wasn't until HBO came back and did the half hours and I did those that uh, I actually got to do. It was the first time people got to see me. You know, not in a club. They were at home, and they got to see that this is what I do. And, it, you know, and that was the same time I got on the Opie and Anthony show, and they all kind of came out at the same time. It was the first time I went to a club, and it was sold out, and people were there to see me, which was a whole other level of pressure. It used, it used to be, yes. It, um, up until then, it was people coming to the club because that's what they did. They had nothing else to do. Like, oh, let's go down to the comedy club. And you had to prove to them that you were funny. And I used to remember thinking, like, imagine if they came to see me, how much easier this would be. I didn't realize the other pressure was like, no, we saw that. So we're expecting at least that, if not better. And then it's like, oh, man. Um, so that took me like a good three months of the, it was a new kind of nervousness experience to get over of, of people expecting like, yeah, we're here to see you. We like what you do. Don't ruin this. <laughs> <laughs> what was the first special? Um, the first half hour? Yeah. Or not the Comedy Central, but the first time you could be yourself. Oh, that was the HBO half hour yeah. that I did. And um, that was in 2005. 2005. Still remember, April 2005 came out in September. Has, is there anything since then? And I, I mean, this is an assumption on my part, which is dangerous. But did you feel like you had summited the mountain at that point? Did you feel like you'd arrived? No, I felt that somewhere in like 2009, 2010. I, by then I'd done a couple of hours. I'd done my second hour for Netflix, which became the new HBO as far as just totally uncensored. And um, I remember, I think I bought a house at that point. I bought a house, right? And still, you know, people didn't really, you know, I had a niche following in that. And I said to my wife, I was just like, I know you're not supposed to say this, but I made it. Because there's this sickness in this business of like, no, man, if you think you made it, and then you're going to relax yeah. and it's all going to go away. So like, oh, so I'm never going to be happy. Yeah. It's like I, I tell dick jokes and I just bought a house. I made it. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't want to um, I didn't want to be that guy that that is doing well. It's like, oh, but what about the next thing? Like the, the, those, yeah. those, that, that sickness. Just the, gray, the greyhound chasing the, re, the rabbit. Yeah. Yeah. Performers or driven people can have this sickness of like, it's just, you know, it's just like you can't even enjoy it. It's like, what's the next thing? I mean, I know guys that like they have like they, they accomplish something. And as they're right, as they're getting right to the peak, this depression hits them. Because they're like, then what? And then what am I going to do? And then, then this is over. And then, then I got nothing and blah, blah, blah. It's like, hey, can you just fucking have a beer up here? We, we, we did this, you know? Can we enjoy this for a second? Did you, keep, did you continue doing therapy after those initial sessions that you mentioned? I, I did it for a few years. And then one day it just dawned on me that I just kind of am just talking in circles in here. And it's just like bad shit's going to always happen to me. 
And what am I going to keep coming in here and I'm moaning about it? Like, at what point am I going to grow up and kind of not need, not need this? And I'm not trying to say that you're weak if you go there, but I, I just hit this point where uh, I, was, I was like, all right, you know, I, I, all of that shit happened. You know, it happened, right? And it yeah. definitely affected who I am. But now I'm not going to be, like, lashing out at people. And I'll be like, oh, I do this because of that, a little, a little bit of that. But I, I, what I did, you know, at some point, it'd be like if somebody's teaching how to fix a car. At some point, you've got to try to fix it yourself. Right. You know what I mean? You can't keep going, then do I turn right here? Well, how do I do this, right? So I it just became like that. So now I, I kind of, um, you know, I kind of self-therapy myself. It's cheaper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned the... Uh, I guess, delusion maybe of always chasing the next thing and never being satisfied with where you are. The other worry that I've heard a lot from friends of mine who are comedians is that if they do therapy or meditation or fill in the blank to tone down some of their tendencies, that it will make them less funny. Yeah. Is that something you, th- you I thought, thought that was true. No, it's not true. Yeah. But what it does is it gives you an insight into you as a human and then you start you see people differently and it, it actually allowed me to um write like or think about characters and just notice shit with people yeah. that i never did before like i got a I got a thing with somebody somebody anybody who does this <laughs> when they're talking like i wasn't blah 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 they're full of shit <laughs> no not only not only are they full of shit, they have a complete inability to accept responsibility for anything they've ever done. I just recently told this to Jim Norton. Um, it was that publicist who backed over, like, those 12 people in, like, oh, yeah. Long Island. Oh, sure. And then I remember she just she drove away, and then she went to her house. And when she got to her house, like, the cops showed up, yeah. and the lawyer met them in the driveway <laughs> and was like... Um, yeah, she'll come down tomorrow and blah, blah, blah. And they left. And I remember thinking, like, you can fucking do that? I didn't know you could do that. So she was, of course, vilified. And then the next day in the paper, they had this picture of her. And she was, like, talking to the media. She was like, eh. She had a hand like that. It's like, you fucking backed over 11 people. I'll go with you that that can happen, that you can't see that. But you left. You fucking left. Yeah, get the fuck out of here. So I've noticed that. And I remember... So you start picking up on that. And I remember one yeah. time this comic did some passive aggressive shit to him. I called him out on it and he immediately went with the two hands to the chest. <laughs> I'm like, that's the kind of guy that would back over 11 people and drive away. <laughs> so I wouldn't have noticed that if I didn't go to therapy. And I've also noticed like, um, you know, like I like, yeah, I, I talk to myself a lot about like going, you know, like getting into it with people and screaming and yelling. And then I'll drive away and be like, all right, Bill, how did that go? You know, and then try to see how they're how, you know, if I was wrong in it, like they were right. You know, at somebody's yeah. mom, you just yelled at her like, what's wrong with you? You're like, mm-hmm. I really had like a uh, like really a hair trigger kind of thing. So it's something that, um, you know, working on my temper, uh, I really try to. I've really been uh, like, especially lately, because, you know, I was making my wife like on pins and needles because. It wasn't like I was flipping out over anything. Like, I fucking hate these things. Whatever this, the second I came out and I saw this, whatever this is, this pad. Yeah, I bet. I hate these, I hate these six. <laughs> I can't stand them. They don't make my life easier. They're a nightmare. They're intrusive. You know? Am I, am, I can't, I, I can't stand them. So I, I flip out about them and like, um, 
I saw a thing recently. This politically active comedian was sitting there talking. It was trying to get people to vote in like this oddly like bullying way going like, you know, there's going to be an app out there that's going to say, you know, whether you voted or not. And they're not going to know whether you voted and who you voted for, but they're going to know that you voted. So you can't basically bullshit people anymore. I just was watching it the whole time going, and, like, that's a good thing, <laughs> that that level of private information because of this fucking app. I didn't say that you could say whether I voted or not. That's what I, I, that's what I, I, I hate about all of this shit. Like, I, I have a theory, like, like somewhere around 94, 95, we should, we should have stopped making new shit. Yeah. All right? <laughs> they could... They cured enough diseases. Cars were fast enough. You could, you know, planes aren't any really faster than they were back then. It was good. But all of this shit now that, like, you know. Tape your cameras. Yeah. Tape your cameras. All of this stuff. Look at Billy Bush. Billy Bush got fired for some shit that happened in 2005. It's fucking unbelievable. And all he was doing is what an interviewer does. He was keeping the interviewee happy. Right? The guy, yeah, go, I just grabbed the pussy. He's like, yeah, grab some pussy. Whatever. We doing this? And for all you know, at the end of the interview, when Trump left, he could have been like, what was that? How was that guy like? That guy was out of his mind. He was talking about grabbing pussies. He's fucking crazy. <laughs> Anyways, who do we got next? Matthew McConaughey. All right, all right. What's going on? You know? He's just doing that. For all you know, that's all he was doing. And it was literally like, that's what I hate about this shit. It's like you literally take two seconds of somebody's fucking life and you're like, that's who you are. That's you. That that tweet is who you are. That's what's in your heart and all of this shit. I, I got friends of mine that have gotten like big shows, SNL and stuff like that. They, one person, they, they go back to 2010. They went through six years of tweets to try and, well, 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 well what was about this one? Right? Yeah, it's like, get the fuck out of here, right? Why didn't you start doing the podcast? I guess uh, Bobby Kelly, once again, I was hanging at his apartment when we, we used to live near each other in New York. And he was just like, dude, you got to do this. It's called a podcast. I had no idea what it was. He goes, you know, it's another way to connect with your fans. And both me and him and all of my friends, we, we weren't the guys they were picking. Yeah. We just weren't the guys. We weren't whatever they were going for. They, we just never were the guys. And, you know, and yet we, they, on every showcase, they'd always put us on last because we would, you know, we, we were really good at what we did, but there was always like the, you know, whatever the hell it was they were looking for. We were just we were the outcasts. So um, so any way to connect with your fans, we had to do it. And that was this new thing. And I just liked doing it. And at first I just I used to call in used to before I had like a, the mixer and all that I used to call in this, this service. So I would just call up this phone number on my flip phone and I would just I would be in airports and I would just be trashing people and telling stories and singing songs. And at first I just did it for like seven minutes and it was 10 minutes. Then it became 20, then a half hour. And then I started going like, well, you know, yeah, you know, ask me some questions or I had this thing underrated, overrated for a while and YouTube video of the week. And I just sort of built like a show around it. And, um, and it just kind of became what it became. Was it for shits and giggles or was there something? No, I want, I, I wanted to connect with fans. You know, it was a way to just, just another thing to do. And, um, but it was also, uh, I enjoyed it because there's other ways to connect with fans that I don't enjoy. Like all those, um, those things you guys, when you upload your pictures, yeah. I don't like those. Cause it says, can we have access to, to all your photos? And it's like, no, you can have access to this photo. You fucking weirdo. <laughs> so I don't do it, you know? So I, I just don't do any of those, but then there's yeah. other stuff that like, it's the same thing. It's like the mall thing again. Like, does this fit into the wheelhouse of what I feel like I want to do? And it was just something I like doing, so I just started doing it. So between, or I should say, during the period of your specials, uh, 
and then getting all the way to F is for family. What were the what were the high points for you in that that entire? I didn't schedule? hear the question. I just heard that person groaning out there, like ah. <laughs> sorry, sorry. We're, we're getting down to the end Bad here. Question. Right? That's a C minus question. Bear with me. No, I think it's I'm working on my hurt. material. I think his ass is hurting from sitting down. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> this okay. is the beauty. We can we can go around again. Here we go. <laughs> So from the, from the point that you started doing your specials up to F is for Family, were there any particular inflection points or experiences that set you on the path that led you to where you are? Um, any like formative experiences? You know, I'm thinking of Chappelle's show. I'm thinking of Breaking Bad. I mean, you have, you have so much that you've done. I'm just wondering if any stand out. Like influenced a- my comedy or just got me to where I'm at? Both. Either. All right. Well, getting me to where I'm at is like, you know how long it took me to make it is like, it's a bunch of people. It's comics that I saw when I was in Boston, people who gave me shots, um, getting in at the comic strip it was a woman, Amanda Schatz at MTV. She, um, saw me in Boston and then she was like, I want you to, I want to see you in New York. And I couldn't get in at the comic strip. I remember Lucian going, I already have enough white guys, blah, 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 blah. And I remember, I remember all these white guys used to get mad at Bob. It's like reverse racism. And they want to say all this type of shit. And it's just like, dude, you know what he's saying. There's like, we're not even a dime a dozen. There's like, we're a dime for 60 of us. And if you're going to be another asshole coming in here talking about your cul-de-sac life, he already has that. So, you know, stop being a baby about it, right? Everything else is gravy for you as a white dude. So, um, so I just basically was like, I, I remember thinking like, all right, this guy's, I, I'm, I'm going to get in here. I'm, I don't know how, but I'm going to get in here. And she saw me. And so she hooked me up with the showcase there. Somehow I did well. I got past there, which led me to get into New York. And then um, through New York, just being there. I remember Dave Chappelle said some nice things to me one night um saying that basically uh you're gonna get there but the road that you're going is gonna take longer but when you when you get there you're gonna have that staying thing and i held on to that for years and when i would be playing some shithole i was just like but dave Chappelle said you know (laughs) um but then it would just you know a lot of radio guys um uh jim norton get me in with opie and anthony was huge randy bauman in pittsburgh because like i would go to these markets and um the guys that I really vibed with, like they would give me the option to be like, hey, rather than flying in Thursday morning for your Thursday through Sunday, if you want to fly in Wednesday or Tuesday and just do radio the whole week, um, you know, I'll help you pack the place. And guys like Randy Bauman in, in Pittsburgh, I, and I would do that. I would just come in, have no shows Tuesday, Wednesday, and I would just do four hours of radio in the morning, do the whole morning show, and then do morning on Thursday and Friday, just killing as hard as I could to, you know, get it like half full. Maybe they don't have to pull the curtain. And it was just all those types of things. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess, uh, I don't know, I've been doing this shit for a long time. So I'm trying to, yeah, Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad was huge because <laughs> forever I wanted to play a guy like that. All right. But back when I had my hair and stuff, I looked like Ron Howard. So. It was like they, I was always the friend. I was the nerd. I just wasn't going to be that guy. And I just always wanted to play a guy like Kubi. And they gave me a shot. And, um, and then through that, all of a sudden, I got these other roles. Like, you know, once you get it on tape and they can see that you can do it, then like, oh, we can do this. And then people will take a shot on you. So that, that was a huge thing. And um, I'd say Mike Binder with when I did Black or White. 
which became Black and White. Black, yeah, that was, it, what was it? It was Black and White was the original name of it, but somebody already owned the, the, the copyright of that, and they wouldn't sell it. So then we had to switch it to Black or White, and it was like this trial about who should have the, uh, the rights to watch this kid that was, was uh, racially mixed, was half white and half black. So black and white made it seem inclusive, but we had to switch it to black or white. So it kind of became like this, make a decision kind of vibe to it. But he let me, I, I got to play a lawyer in that and um, had all these great dramatic scenes and all that. So I kind of got a nice like acting thing going on where I get to do some drama stuff. I get to do some comedy stuff. So it's been cool. Yeah. Speaking of Cosmo Magazine, uh, this uh, next question is from Marcus Harbaugh, I think is how you say it, also from Facebook. My wife thinks he's hilarious, and she's generally not a fan of pro-male types of comedy. How did he learn to so expertly deliver that kind of humor without alienating his female audience? I alienate a lot of females. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I, I, I alienate issue people i alienate politically correct people like they they got like that thing where like you know this is the issue you're only allowed to have this thought on this issue i have zero sense of humor about this issue these are all the proper words these are all the if you use these bad if you use these words this you're this if you use that they're very like it's hilarious because they're progressive left using the exact same like fox news extreme right they're the exact same fucking lunatics I hate I hate progressive left people, and I, generally speaking, and and the Fox News to the right. They're taking our country. Those people, those I I can't even listen to them. They're yeah. idiots. Yeah. They're they, like both of them, and they both have both of them like like their heart is in the right place. Mm-hmm. They just they're not doing it, they, and they're doing it in this very Stalin-esque kind of way <laughs> of yeah. zero tolerance. Oh, yeah. Um, and it, what's funny to me is the right always gets that. The left just cannot see when they're doing it. It's like yeah. you've become what the fuck you're fighting and yeah. you're annoying. Yeah. You're annoying. So, I mean, I think that explains, you know, a little bit of the Trump shit, like how that guy kind of came up with. It's like you guys were ramming this shit down. Like what? This is it's so fucked up. If you just look at politics, like Obama was a response to eight years of the Bush people ramming it down your throat. And he was a response to eight years of Clinton people ramming it down their throats. And then 12 years before that, you had Reagan and Bush. Both sides just can't present their shit. They got to be like, fucking eat it, eat it. Like, <laughs> you know, and it's all it does is it, it causes resentment. And the, if yeah. you look, the pendulum just keeps swinging yeah. like further, further and, and further, further. And people sound fucking right now. People sound crazy to me <laughs> on either side yeah. that I, I can't watch it. It's like if anybody, if anybody in the left gets in, it's like it's going to be socialism. This is going to be like communist Russia. And if anybody right gets in, it's like this is like Germany in 1935. <laughs> Every fucking time, just just going, just going like this. So I don't know. Like I just try to just be like, all right, I'll just let's settle down. Everybody, fucking relax. Get yourself a sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> Some of these things could be true. Some of them might not be true. But like getting into this, ah, ah, is, is, you're not going to be able to think clearly and be able to make the right move when you have to, I, I, I guess. So we'll, we'll see. Now, do you deliberately at times try to lose the audience, like push them to the breaking point and like there is something that I, I and then reel them back? I mean, is that what sort I of used a sport to do? What yeah. I used to do that was from playing hell rooms and no one would listen. So. 
what I would do is I, I would make a statement that would make people be like, dude, what the fuck? And thinking that I'm, I'm heading towards this thing, right? Yeah. Like I would make a statement that would make anything, make you feel like I'm heading towards like uh, supporting the Klan or beating women or anything like that. You just say that and that gets everybody to drop their fork to listen. <laughs> to like, dude, what the fuck is this? And then you just wind them back to the point that you wanted to make anyways. And they're like, oh, all right, okay, that's kind of funny. And then you just keep doing that. And then eventually... Once I once I had the room, yeah. once I had the room, then I could just do my show. And I think a little bit of that has started to bleed into my style. I don't I mean, I don't do that anymore on purpose. But when I was coming up, I used to do that on purpose. There was all these techniques. You could also start talking quieter if people were talking louder. People used to say that. That never fucking worked for me. Then no, just nobody heard me. I was just like, okay, nobody's listening to my jokes. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, a lot of that came from um, you know, all the, those crazy rooms I did. And I'm very proud that I did all those, and I didn't sidestep any of those. Like, I pretty much did all of them. I did the, uh, the good rooms, the bad rooms, the white rooms, black rooms, gay clubs. I did everything because I, I really felt that I, I... I know why. I know why. Just re- I remember this. I, when I was a kid, not a kid, um, I was, like, probably 18 years old, and it was the summer of 86, and Rodney Dangerfield, late, great Rodney Dangerfield, was on... Um, he was on tour, and he came to this place, Great Woods. Now it's called the Tweeter Center. And I remember he came, and he, he killed, and he was hilarious and all that, and I saw all these people there, blah, 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 blah. And I didn't notice that they were all white, because I was white. So I was just like, oh, wow, we're all watching this guy, whatever. And then, like, like, a month later, I saw Eddie Murphy on the Raw tour. He had the blue leather suit. I had lawn seats. That's how famous this dude was. I was sitting on the grass <laughs> watching a guy doing stand-up comedy. He had, like, the weather girls opened up for him and everything. And I remember that night looking around going, wait, this guy's making everybody laugh. This is the difference. So I remember when um, getting into comedy that I, I didn't want to be that guy, like being like a radio station. Like he makes white males 18 to 35, you know, <laughs> like I, I wanted to be like, no, this guy is funny. But but the only way to do that was to do all of those uh, those different rooms. And it didn't it didn't always go well. Um, like black rooms are hilarious. Like they. It's like they, what I learned about them is they're either gonna, they're having fun. No matter, they're either going to have fun with you or without you. But either way, they're going to have a good time. So that was that was definitely um, those were some of my favorite shows that I ever did. There was a, there was a legendary show at this now gone comedy club that sounded like a fucking wine bar, which just kills me because I mean it was just the rawest sickest like in the village it was right as giuliani was taking over so people were still selling drugs out in front of him it was just it was crazy and i used to see like you know all these guys like young dave Chappelle, jay moore all these red johnny and the round guy all these guys just they just murdering in there but sunday night was was the uptown show because they wouldn't say you know the black only show i guess so they would say the uptown show and this guy uh um talent and and will sylvance used to host that show and that for me that was the show like to this day like that was that was the most fun show i ever did was when when you killed on that show dude it was like you, you walked out of like why am i not famous yet like that's how hard <laughs> it was just everyone was on top of you it was the greatest ever but when you bombed it was just like why did i ever think i was funny i should have opened a <laughs> hardware store like you would just leave like uh those are some rough nights, though, going back to the, uh, 
technically one bedroom that was really a studio and getting under the futon just laying there. Yeah. A lot of grunting and groaning the next day in the shower, like, oh, God, I hate myself, you know? What piece of advice would you give your 25-year-old self? Oh, I hate that question. What they always say that. If you could go back and tell yourself what you know now. Uh... What did you dislike about your 25-year-old self, if you prefer that question? Um, what did I dislike? No, I, I definitely felt like a freak back then. I definitely did not feel... I never felt like I fit in anywhere until I went to a comedy club and just seeing all the comics. And I was just like, these, these people are the same kind of crazy that I am. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. everybody's out of their mind, but, like, they, there was a specific way that they were nuts that, like, I just... Fe- like, I would just meet them. Like, like I, it's like, I know this person, but I don't know them. Like, they, yeah. it just felt like, um, in a weird way, like you were going home. It was crazy. But as far as like what I would tell myself, um, I would be afraid to fuck it up because it yeah. ended up so well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, it's like that uh, back to the school, not, yeah. but back to the future, whatever the hell it's called. Um, <laughs> I always mess up the name of movies. Back to the future where you change one thing sure. and, you, yeah, know, yeah. Next you, thing, you know, your mom wants to fuck you or however that happened. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> Wasn't that one of the storylines? Yeah. <laughs> Calvin. Look that at me, feel-good family movie. <laughs> the mom wants to bang her son from the future. Oh, it was great for the kids. It was wonderful. <laughs> oh, the 80s. <laughs> How old are you now? 48. What do you think your 60-year-old self would tell your current self? In terms Buy of some advice? apartment buildings. Buy some apartment buildings. Yes. Because you're going to be... I, you know, I, no, I want to do stuff like that because I want to... When I'm 70, I want to leave if I want to. I probably won't because I love doing it so much, but I don't want to be that guy in that mustard-stained tuxedo suit just still, you know, as the numbers start going down the back nine. And I'm like, oh, I have things to say, you know, and just people going like, oh, I saw him in front of like three people. It was sad. There was a, there was a donut-making sheet machine in the back. Like I go back to those gigs. So I would like to uh, not go out and, and, you know, I'm doing real well. I'm making great money. I would like to not go out and buy a bunch of dumb, shiny shit. I would like to buy shit like assets so I have money. So my, my next goal, the same way I did the thing where I never got sucked so far into this business where I had to apologize if I was, even if I wasn't sorry, I, um, I now want to get the money that I'm making this business to make money outside of the business. Mm-hmm. So Because eventually this business is done with you. Yeah. It just is. And you have to really, you got to deal with that shit. So like, I, I would just love to be, to be honest with you, man, if I could just, you know, making a decent amount of money off of shit like that. Yeah. I just always picture myself just sitting on the back porch, you know, with a dog, not giving a shit, smoking a cigar. Like that's how I want to, <laughs> what kind of cigar? I would still do stuff. Uh, oh, they don't mess them up yeah. with global warming. If you can still make a great one, it'd definitely be a Cuban. Hmm. Um, probably a, uh, Robusto, the uh, Cohibas I like. I like the Partagas. I just smoked one recently. I don't even know the name of it. It was one of the sickest cigars I, uh, I've ever smoked, but it was like, it was like a two-hour smoke. And uh, I, I absolutely love cigars, but, like, you know, there is a thing amongst cigar smokers where, like, if someone comes nosing around, you know, if you break up, if you bust out, like, a box of cigars at a party, all these fucking phonies will come up oh yeah and i go you smoke cigars oh yeah i smoke cigars and you'll learn this one time you'll give out your cigars to them and then what kills you is you'll look over like a half hour later and the thing's like halfway smoked and they already ashed the thing out of this 
snubbed the thing out, and uh, I learned that. So I got a bu- Bobby Kelly. I shouldn't out him here. I shouldn't have said his name. He has, sorry, we, he, he has two, fix it in post. He has two humidors. <laughs> he's got the real shit, and then he's got his bullshit. <laughs> so if somebody comes over and be like, so he just, hey, you like cigars? Oh, yeah, what kind, what kind do you like? And if they're just saying bullshit, oh, yeah, I got one for you. I got one I wanted a carnival. Here you go. The guy, oh, that's great. It's delicious. <laughs> so, but I, I really like um, smoking a cigar is, is a sacred thing to me. Yeah. Like, if I have a great cigar, like, sometimes if there's no place to smoke, I will not smoke it. Like, I'm not going to be this asshole. These fucking, a couple of my friends, they're animals. They'll stand next to a dumpster. Like, it's, it's, it's not a, <laughs> cigarette smokers are animals. They're like, they're on the shit, right? So they'll be in an alley. They don't care. <laughs> fucking rat running by. They're out there smoking, <laughs> catching pneumonia. They're animals. Cigar smoking is a gentleman thing. It's like, it's, a, it's a really, it's an adult thing. And so it's just like I want to be with people that I love, telling stories, hanging out, and like the right, the right everything. And then, and then, and even if you're doing it by yourself, it's like you have to have. I'm never doing this. Like, well, can I can I smoke it before blah blah blah? It's like I would just want to have nothing, and I just sit there. And that great guy thing that my wife cannot understand is just being able to be a guy and just be not thinking about shit and just be sitting there <laughs> and just enjoying yourself. So. <laughs> Uh, next question is from Sharpie Sharp. Uh, I would like to see that birth certificate. This is from Facebook. Uh, what's the best heckle that's been thrown your way or oh, most man. memorable? There's too many, man. Um, all right. We'll go around. We'll go around the. Uh... All right. When I was black room, best one I ever got, I was bombing. At this place it used to be called Mixed Nuts. It's now called the Comedy Union. <laughs> and nuts. I was up there, and dude, when I tell you five minutes of straight silence, dry mouth, nothing, <laughs> and it was the summertime when sound carries, right? And I'm just <laughs> going and going, and it's nothing and nothing. And then just in the middle of one of my jokes, I'm meandering in this long setup for something else that's gonna bomb. This big black lady in the back, just out loud to nobody, just sort of looked around, just went like, I ain't laughed yet. <laughs> and the whole place exploded laughing. And I didn't know how to deal with it. I didn't know I had to address it. I kept trying to do my material. And then they were just laughing at me, trying to do my... It was fucking humiliating. Um, and then, I don't know. There's one... Uh, I'll tell you the weirdest one I got. Um, I've told this one before. One of the weirdest ones I got, I was at Dangerfields uh, doing the, the midnight show, and it was just one of those nights everybody was bombing. The place was packed, and nobody was laughing. I remember the guy in front of me, like, he was just bombing so bad, and he was in, on some show where he played a bartender, and he had gotten beaten up. He's like, oh, did you guys see that movie? He's trying to get you guys see this movie, blah, 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 blah. He goes, yeah, I played the bartender. The, you know, the, the, the star of the movie beat the, you know, beat the shit out of me. You guys see that? And then some kid in the back just goes, he should have killed you. <laughs> so I was like, oh, and that guy walked past me, never even looked at me. He just, when he got off stage, he just had this flop sweat and just walked by me just going, wow. Wow. <laughs> and then I went on stage immediately bombing. And there was this group of kids in the corner, these white dudes, and they were just like, just ready for a fight. They were just super fucking hot. That, that whole... 
my dad used to beat the shit out of me vibe. Yeah. And everything I had learned up to that point was like, Bill, don't get into it with them. I heard him talking, and I was like, don't say anything, don't say anything. And then finally, I just, it's this fucking thing when you're on stage as a comic. You think like this, and this is like some sort of like a fucking gun and bullets, but it isn't. <laughs> it's just plastic shit. And I just like, I finally said, I go, hey, you know what? What's going on over there? What are you, what are you guys talking about? And blah, blah, blah. I can't remember what to say. And this guy just finally was just yelled out. You know, I had the, he goes, anything, he just yells out. He goes, anything red and on stage is a faggot. <laughs> right? And it was the most childish heckle I ever got. This is back when, like, people didn't freak out about that word. You guys are like, oh, my God, what does that say about gay people? But this was when straight people used it. It just meant you were an asshole. And um, <laughs> so he said that. I just remembered, like, I didn't know what to do. It was just like, it was so fucking childish. <laughs> But I also knew he was going to, like, beat the shit out of me. So I just went, like, right back into my state, like, my, my act. Like, that's almost like a cooties joke, <laughs> you know? <laughs> this right here, the reaction to that is why you can never leave the comedy clubs, by the way. Like, because that used to be a funny story. But now because of, like, that now gay people said what that word makes us feel like. Now everybody, it, even if you say it and you say that somebody else said it to you, it becomes this weird thing of, like... Well, does yeah. he advocate what he said? It just becomes all of that and becomes like context and all of that shit. So, well, that's what he said. Just have, just have a few, a handful more questions. But you mentioned helicopter parents. Helicopters. Helicopters, yes. Let's talk about helicopters. All right. How did you, how and why did you get into helicopters? God, you're just running the gamut of everything here. Uh, oh, okay. Helicopters, how did I get into that? Paranoia of living in California. Okay. Living in the L.A. basin, enough conspiracy theory about nothing being behind the dollar, um, robots coming and all that type of shit. And this, this place became really claustrophobic where I was just like, how the hell would I ever get out of here when this shit hits the fan? How do you get out of here? Like, even when it's working well, it still takes three hours just to yeah. get out of here. Forget about some Armageddon shit. And I was just thought, you know, up and out. That's yeah. the way to go. Learn yeah. how to fly a helicopter. And when the zombies come, you just start it up and you just fly out. So, uh, assuming you're. By the way, that yeah. does not work. If you ever see that in the movies where you just start the thing up and you fly out like that, I mean, you can do that, but you're going to fuck it up. Like, you got to let the band, the band they, they got like belts and stuff. They got to let those things stretch. You got to let the engine heat up and all that. So, anytime you see Rambo and those guys just jumping in jumping it like, cold like in it's a Camaro and you just, <laughs> I mean, if zombies were coming, I would definitely do that shit, but I'd be going, ah, I was flying away like, please don't let the belt snap. <laughs> then you just nose it down into one of those fucks take one with you I'm just imagining the visual uh, just like a lawnmower just taking out zombies the, uh, <laughs> so do you have other preparations now this is spoken to someone so people think this is crazy uh, so in San Francisco and then in New York Got really into, at one point, went off the deep end with prepping stuff. Like, got really into it. Like, going to canneries for LDS. You guys can look it up. You can really go down the rabbit hole. And some of you will spin out and get tied up in a straitjacket. Uh, but I, and I was being kind of lectured at how unreasonable it was and how silly it was that I was getting water and gathering food and all this stuff just in case we had disaster that took us off the grid for seven days or more at SF, which happens fairly regularly. And uh, some editors were kind of making fun of me because I was writing at the time. And then Hurricane Sandy hit New York, and lo and behold, 
Nobody was prepared, right? So do you have, besides the helicopter, mm -hmm. do you have other preparations? Nope. No. And, I, and, I, don't, and I, I don't own a helicopter either. So it's pretty fucking useless. <laughs> no, what it was was I went down that rabbit hole, and you, you got to get gold coins, and you got to get this powdered food and all that type of stuff. Yeah. And then somewhere along the line, I was just like, do I really want to survive this? Do I really want to see what's next, or do I want to be one of the people that dies? Like, and I realized, no, I want to be one of the people that dies. <laughs> JFK said it, the, 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 the living will envy the dead. And it's true. I don't want to start over again. <laughs> Some whole new society. I remember doing. A, I used to do a bit on that. Somebody just picking up a rake, like these are the new rules, and you just all gathering around with your burlap shirt with the string tied around it. I know. Like I remember when the uh, that that fat dude who was running North Korea, right? The boss's son, who's yeah, trying yeah. way too hard yeah. to show that he's a badass, was saying he was going. He had missiles aimed at L.A. and everyone was panicking. I was like, perfect, man. I hope it's right at my house. Right at my house. And I hope I'm watching a UFC or football Sunday, just sitting there, just, just vaporized. Who you don't want to be is the people up in Bakersfield. Just outside of it, you still get the radiation with the boils and shit. You're trying to, your teeth are falling out. Fuck that. <laughs> trying to figure out how to catch squirrels. I have no desire to do any of that. Ladies and gentlemen, Bill Burr. Thank you. Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday. Do you want to get a short email from me? Would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend? And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up in the, uh, the world of the esoteric as I do. It could include favorite articles that I've read and that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out. Just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com, all spelled out, and just drop in your email, and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. I have known and loved Shopify just about forever. Back in 2009, when they had something like eight or 10 employees, now they have more than 2,000, I helped them as an advisor to create the Build a Business Competition, which is now the world's largest entrepreneurship competition. And many readers of my blog, first-time business owners, have ended up making millions and millions of dollars each, many of them as side gigs to their full-time jobs. So the goal of the Build a Business competition is to get would-be entrepreneurs to get off the couch and make things happen. All you have to do is open a store on Shopify and start selling. And you can join in July or after July to be eligible to win. What does winning mean? You have to be one of the top performers, top sellers in a given category. And the prize, the reward, is an exclusive opportunity to learn from mentors and experts. And in the past, that has happened at places like the 
Gatsby Castle, where we had Tony Robbins and Damon John and Seth Godin and so on. We're on Necker Island, which is Sir Richard Branson's private island. It's nuts and super, super fun. I'm also involved. So there's a special offer for people listening to the show. Go to shopify.com forward slash Tim and sign up for a free 30-day trial. You will get all sorts of exclusive free video courses to help you along and to get started, including how to start a profitable dropshipping business with Corey Ferreira. You will also get some goodies from me. It's all free. It's all exclusive for people who are listening to this podcast. So check it out, shopify.com forward slash Tim. And remember to sign up for the free 30-day trial. This episode is brought to you by FreshBooks. Man, oh man, do a lot of listeners of this podcast and readers of mine love FreshBooks to the extent that I ended up meeting with the CEO not very long ago. Why are they so popular? Well, they are the number one cloud accounting software designed exclusively for self-employed professionals. That's many of you and used by more than 10 million people. You can send invoices, track your time and get paid very, very quickly, which suits the needs of a lot of freelancers, a lot of entrepreneurs and beyond. You can take pictures of receipts. You can link your credit card and debit card. So all the things you buy automatically appear in your fresh books in the right category. So on and so forth makes taxes easy, makes invoices easy, makes your life easier. And also, in fact, I recommend a PDF. Uh, they didn't ask me to read this part, by the way. They put together a PDF a while back uh, called Breaking the Time Barrier, subtitle How to Unlock Your True Earning Potential. So you can search for Breaking the Time Barrier. A lot of people ask me, how can I get a four-hour work week with a service business? And the story in that ebook, it's PDF, is the short answer. It's really, really good. So I think you should also check that out. So Breaking the Time Barrier, check it out. But also, why not test out FreshBooks? Claim your 30-day unrestricted free trial at freshbooks.com forward slash Tim and enter Tim Ferriss, two R's and two S's, in the how did you hear about us section. That sounds <laughs> like we're going to get very little tracking. That's a lot of work. But just go to freshbooks.com forward slash Tim and try it out because it is a very good product and I think you will find it simplifies your life. Enjoy. Enjoy. 